And as we come together to humble ourselves before the preaching of the word, we have an opportunity to do what we've just sung, and that is to behold our, our God, behold our King. And the lyrics in the song before that, we celebrate the power of the cross. And I hope the reality of that statement will be even more profound after having been here this morning. As we approach the Easter season that celebrates the the resurrection of Christ, it is important that we also reflect upon the intent of the atonement, especially as it relates to the love of God. Therefore, I've entitled my expositions to you this morning, and I say expositions because we're going to look at a number of passages this morning, not just one. But I've entitled my expositions, God's Redeeming Love in Definite Atonement. In 1 John 4 and verse 8, we read that God is love. And the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 13, 11, that he is the God of love and peace. And as his image bearers, we were made to love and to experience the love of God and the love of others. Like all of you that are grandparents, I love watching my grandbabies, observing how they grow and how they think. And one characteristic that stands out, probably above all of the rest, is their desperate need to be loved and to be cared for. A quick story to help you understand where we're going to be going this morning. I remember about a year ago when my little granddaughter was was three, we were at the, the zoo together, and I was pushing her in the stroller, you know, those little strollers with the little top, it was kind of hot, and a little girl suddenly ran by in the crowd, and she was hollering, Papa, Papa. Evidently, her papa was 20 yards up or so. And as she ran by, just being silly, I said, what? And she turned around and looked at me like, what? Who are you? And then she took off. And immediately, my little granddaughter, Pepper, began to sob uncontrollably. I thought maybe she had been stung by a wasp. I didn't know what was going on. And, and I looked down at her and I said, sweetheart, what's wrong? And here's what she said. You're not her, Papa. You're my Papa. <laughs> As adults, are we really any different? Do we not all have a longing to be loved? by God in a special and a very unique way. I don't know about you, but it is impossible for me to even begin to fathom God's love for me. I don't see myself as worthy of of any love. Yet I crave his love more than life itself, don't you? And because of his unmerited, uninfluenced grace, I have it and you have it if you are in Christ. 1 John 3 and verse 1, we read, See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called children of God, as such we are. 
The original language in that text carries the idea that, that this is an astonishing love, something that is completely foreign to human experience. Beloved, do you realize that God loves his children with a special love? Do you realize that his love for his elect is unique? That his love for us is a special love, an intense and intimate love. The love that he has for those he has called unto himself in eternity past, a love different than, those that he, than, than for those that do not belong to him. And I wish to address these concepts this morning under two very simple headings, very broad headings. First of all, we're going to look at God's love for the world, and then secondly, God's love for his own, especially as seen in the doctrine of definite atonement. First of all, if we think of God's love for the world, there are some in Reformed circles such as ours that would argue that God only loves the elect and he hates everybody else. People who hold this view will point to passages such as Psalm 7, verse 11, that says that God is angry with the wicked, or Romans 9, 13, that he loved Jacob, but he hated Esau, uh, or that he hates those who practice wickedness, as we read in uh, Proverbs 6. But folks, such a view, I believe, is, is inconsistent with the God of Scripture, who according to Exodus 34 and verse 6 is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. God's holy hatred of evil and his love for sinners are, are not necessarily mutually exclusive. As we look at scripture, we see the loving nature, the loving character of God. It's described, for example, in Nehemiah 9 and verse 17, where we read that he is a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And according to Psalm 145, beginning in verse 8, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all, and his mercies are over all his works. God even commands us to love our enemies, right? And the reason he gives is seen, for example, in Matthew 5 and verse 45. In order that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his reign to rise, or his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So there we are reminded that he loves both the righteous and the unrighteous in precisely the same way sense that we are commanded to even love our enemies. Moreover, we must remember that Jesus could have never perfectly fulfilled the law in every respect, according to Matthew 5, verse 7 and following, or 17 and following. But he did fulfill the law in every respect, and he couldn't have done that unless he loved everyone. Paul said this in Galatians 5 and verse 14, quote, The whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And again, in Romans 13, verse 8, He who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. So obviously, this is a reference to humanity in general. And of course, we see this in John 3 and verse 16. You all know that text. For God so loved the world... The term world must 
always be interpreted according to context because it means different things in different passages. But certainly in John 3, we must interpret the expression world in verses 16 and 17 as broadly as we understand that same word in verse 19. And there we read, and this is the judgment that the light is come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. So the term world has a universal and a corporate aspect that envelops more than just the elect alone, as some will argue. It speaks of the human race. It speaks of all of humanity. John Calvin correctly saw this verse as a statement that, quote, the Father loves the human race. So indeed, God so loved the world. He loved this world of humanity, mankind in general, as wicked though it was, despite the fact that this world is undeserving of his love. He loved it so much that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him, that is Jew or Gentile, which by the way was a concept that was abhorrent to the Jews, because of their particularism of that day. In other words, they thought that they alone were the chosen ones. But no, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Verse 17, for God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. You see, folks, the father's motive for sending his son into the world was not to search and destroy, but to seek and to save. Out of his great love. The result of his love is the the free offer of mercy and eternal life to anyone who believes without distinction. Therefore, he says in Matthew 11, verse 28, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you a rest. And I will give you rest. So again, while God's love for his elect is, is greater than the love he has for those who do not belong to him, As we will see, his love is nevertheless universal. It extends to all humanity. Paul describes this in Titus 2 and verse 11, where we read, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. And again, in chapter 3 and verse 4, he speaks of, quote, The kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared. Now, this does not teach universalism that all humanity will be saved, but rather that God's grace is offered to all humanity in general without discrimination, and that Christ's sacrifice was sufficient for every sin of every individual who believes. God's universal love for mankind is manifested in at least three categories. First of all, we see it in his common grace. In his common grace, we see his love restraining sin and the effects of sin on the human race and thus preventing humanity from descending into the morass of evil that would certainly engulf the world were sin allowed to give its full expression. Jeremiah says in Lamentations 3.22, Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. We see his universal love as well in his compassion. You realize there is is nothing in any sinner that compels his love. 
He does not love us because we are lovable. <laughs> he, he shows his mercy to us, not because we deserve it, but because of his love. He does not love us because of what we are, but in spite of what we are. Exodus 34, 6, again, he is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. And we see this pictured so powerfully in Jesus weeping over the city of Jerusalem. Remember in Matthew 23, in verse 37, Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. And Luke's account is even more graphic as we read about it in Luke 19, beginning in verse 41. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it. It's the idea of he's just crying out loud. And he said, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace. But now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. And 40 years later, 30,000 Roman troops came and laid siege to Jerusalem. And after four months, they entered Jerusalem. They sacked Jerusalem. They destroyed the city. They killed 1.1 million Jews. And they took 97,000 other men and forced them to be gladiators. And they soon died in the arenas. You see, folks, it's God's nature to love. Nevertheless, he has ordained to allow some that he loves to be judged. But he commands us to love our neighbor, regardless of who they are, to even love our enemies. And for this reason, God loves even the non-elect. Thirdly, we see his love toward humanity in his admonition to call sinners to repentance and offer them the gospel. You see, God promises to forgive and bring into his eternal glory all who trust in Christ as Savior. He even pleads with them to repent and to believe. We see this illustrated, for example, in Jesus' parable of a king who was having a marriage celebration for his son. Remember in Matthew 22, beginning in verse 2 and through verse 14. And there in this parable, he compares the kingdom of heaven to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And there... You will recall the king sends his servants to invite everyone to be guests at the wedding feast, but they were unwilling to come, the text tells us. So then he sent them out again to invite people to come. And the beginning in verse 5, here's what he says. But they paid no attention and went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business, and the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged, and he sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Then he said to his slaves, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. And those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together 
All they found, both evil and good, and the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called but few are chosen. See, folks, this pictures the indiscriminate free offer of the gospel to all everywhere without distinction. Those guests who responded to the invitation, who came in hastily off of the highway, needed the proper attire to enter into the banquet hall before the king, and the king was gracious to provide that. But one man refused the king's gracious provision. And he chose instead to wear his own wedding garment, which was improper. And although those who refused the king's invitation insulted him, the man who accepted the invitation but refused to wear the proper garment that the king provided committed an even greater insult because of his impertinence. In other words, because of his brazen disrespect that he would manifest in the very presence of the king that he had offended. And of course, the purpose of Jesus' parable was to not only depict the the, the free offer of his grace in the gospel invitation, but to underscore his gracious provision that we must have for the proper wedding garment, which is the garment of the righteousness of Christ. You see, dear friends, when a man sees the poverty of his own righteousness, he will gladly accept the righteousness of Christ. But the man who seeks to establish a righteousness of his own and refuses the robes of righteousness that God provides insults the God of grace by refusing the provision of his own dear son. And it is that provision of justification whereby... Sinful man is declared righteous based upon the imputed righteousness of Christ. It is that provision of justification that provides for us the proper attire to enter into the presence of the king. Moreover, I might add that it is that righteousness that becomes the distinguishing mark of a genuine believer, of a true citizen of the kingdom of God. So that when people see that individual, they can see that somehow that person is different in character and conduct than others because of the imputed, and I might even add, the imparted righteousness of Christ. You see, the disloyalty and disrespect to the king in this parable is a picture of those who identify with the kingdom of God externally, but they do not really respect and worship the king. They profess Christ, but they do not possess him. And churches are filled with these kinds of people. Theirs is a Christless Christianity. They belong to the church in a superficial, visible way. But they have no desire to wear the garment of righteousness that Christ offers. Instead, they are quite satisfied with their own condition, their own righteousness. And again, at the end of that text, he says, many are called which obviously speaks of more than just the elect, right? Many are called, but few are chosen. 
So indeed, because of God's love, he summons all men to repentance and faith. And inherent in that gospel message, we see that many will hear, but few will respond. And the few that will respond will be the elect of God who joyfully and willfully respond to the effectual, supernatural drawing of God. They are part of the whosoever will of the gospel. So, folks, here we see once again the inscrutable mystery and the compatibility of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility and salvation. Many are called, but only a few who are chosen will enter the kingdom. And those that will, will do so solely because of God's uninfluenced, unmerited grace in choosing and drawing them to himself. Now, I know the question comes up, if God's love is universal, why doesn't he save everyone? Why does he only love some in a saving way, yet overlook others? Well, the answer to that question is scripture does not tell us. We simply do not know the mind of God in these things. And I might add, as soon as you try to resolve these things in your mind, you cease to be biblical. Since God is perfectly just in all of his ways, and since nothing occurs apart from his, his eternal purposes to glorify himself, and since, according to Ezekiel 18.32, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, we must humbly conclude, therefore, that God's eternal decrees do not always reflect his desires. His purposes are not always accomplished in accord with his preferences. In fact, in many instances, we see in Scripture that he decrees his own displeasure, as in the death of his beloved son. So we do not know why he chose some and not all. We do not know why it is that though he is fully sovereign, he does not turn the heart of every sinner unto himself. These matters remain a mystery that God has not seen fit to reveal. It's all perfectly compatible in his mind. And we must therefore relax as Deuteronomy 29, 29 tells us, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever that we may observe all the words of this law. But what we do know, dear friends, is that God's love extends to even to sinners some of whom he will ultimately condemn and others whom he will ultimately save. Now, having examined the love for God's love for the world briefly, I want to draw your attention next to his specific love for his elect. Now, while there are no passages that demonstrate this, or I should say, while there are many passages that demonstrate this, we are not going to focus just on a few, and there are many doctrines as well. What I, what I want to look at primarily is just one focus, and that is the doctrine of definite atonement. I want you to see this as the primary way of thinking of God's love for his own. By the way, this is also sometimes called limited atonement, uh, sometimes particular redemption. Those terms can be a m bit misleading. I won't get into that, but... But we're going to use the term that I think best describes this, this doctrine in Scripture, that of definite atonement. 
And that doctrine states that in the death of Jesus Christ, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit accomplish their shared intention to redeem every person given to the Son by the Father in eternity past and to apply the accomplishments of his sacrifice to each of them by the Spirit. Said simply, Christ died for the elect. His death was intended to win the salvation of his people alone. Not every single human being that ever exists has ever existed. I mean, think about it. If Christ paid the penalty for all men without exception, then all men would be saved and there would be no need for hell. And if that, of course, is the heresy of universalism. But you might agree that if you ask the average Christian for whom did Christ die, people will say, well, for, for everybody, for the whole world. Jesus, the idea is that Jesus paid the debt of sin for everyone when he died on the cross. But if you think about that theologically, you have to say, okay, so that means that hell is full of people for whom Christ died. That means that the lake of fire that burns eternally is full of eternally damned people whose sins Christ fully atoned for on the cross. That means that Jesus paid the sins of both the damned and the glorified, that God's Wrath was satisfied on behalf of all men universally, and yet some go to hell. This means that Christ's sacrifice on the cross was for no one in particular, but for everyone in general. That means that he bore the wrath of no one in particular, but everyone in general. And the logical conclusion of this Assertion is that Jesus died for the whole world and that in his death on the cross, what he merely accomplished was a potential salvation, not an actual atonement for a definite group of people. And of course, what I'm describing is the typical Arminian position that essentially says he died for everyone potentially. But it's up to you to accept that gift. Jesus died for everyone indiscriminately so that everyone in the world is forgiven in principle. But the only ones who will be saved are those who, by their own efforts, actualize this potential atonement. Said differently, the actualizing of the atonement is up to man, not God. And if the sinner chooses never to believe in Christ, then the atoning work of Christ remains an unrealized potential. So they believe in an atonement that is unlimited in scope, but limited in its power, in its effect, because it is ultimately at the mercy of the will of the sinner. Well, I would humbly argue that the Bible teaches something very different And when you get a hold of this, the love of God for his redeemed will cause you to want to fall on your face before him. I believe that the Bible teaches that the atonement is limited, not unlimited, but limited in its scope for the elect. But it is unlimited in its power to save to the uttermost. The atonement was not a potential salvation for all. 
It was an actual definite atonement for the many, those whom God had appointed unto salvation. Yes, but, some will say, 1 John 1.29, there we read that John the Baptist identified Jesus as, quote, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. 1 John 2.2, that Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. 1 Timothy 2.6, Christ Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all. Now, when you look at these passages and others like them, you say, well, my, that seems to argue against this whole doctrine of definite atonement. But not so when you understand that the term world is a nonspecific term for humanity in a general sense. Moreover, you must understand the thinking of that day in that context, the Jewish particularism that characterized many within Israel at that time would tell them that God has nothing to do with anybody except us. And so it's crucial for for Jesus and for the apostles to stress that, that the scope of God's redemptive purposes extended beyond the Jews to include all people. You're not the only ones. To include the entire world without distinction, not without exception. And the point then is that the death of Christ was an actual, not a potential propitiation for the sins of all without distinction, not all without exception. And for this reason, the angels and saints in heaven sing, according to Revelation 5 and verse 9, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Now, My main focus here is not to debate this issue, but to marvel at the redeeming love of God in the atonement, one that I believe is definite, not indefinite. Beloved, let me put it this way. Something actually happened at the cross. Jesus bore your sins and my sins specifically in his body. His death effectively purchased his elect. He expiated our guilt. To expiate means to remove. Moreover, he propitiated God's wrath against us. To propitiate means to to satisfy or to placate or to appease. In this case, he appeased the the righteous wrath of God against us. For uh, as we read in 1 John 4 and verse 10, God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Not potentially, but actually. John Murray had it right. Quote, the glory of the cross is bound up with the effectiveness of its accomplishment. Dear Christian, please understand the big picture. As we look at scripture, we see that the ultimate end for which God created all things is to display his glory. And the zenith of his glory, the very apex of his majesty, is the splendor of his grace which he achieved on the cross. 
And it is this magnificent display of God's glory that we must magnify in our preaching, in our teaching, and in our lives so that people can understand that the death of Christ for sinners accomplished exactly what it was intended to accomplish and it was planned before creation. So obviously the glory of God's grace and the death of Christ for his elect was not a plan B. Dear friends, it was the the very reason why he created the universe. Speaking of the power and authority of the Antichrist someday, Revelation 13, 8, we read this, all who dwell on the earth will worship him, referring to the Antichrist. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. There we understand that before God created the world, he purposed that the lamb that would be slain to purchase a people by his blood would accomplish just that, would accomplish the redemption of those people in his slaying, all of those whose names had been written in the book of life. This helps us understand what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 4. He chose us in him. When? Before the foundation of the world. Why? That we would be holy and blameless before him. He goes on to say in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. See, dear friends, God's goal in history is to put the glory of his grace on display through the redemption of those who are, quote, in Christ, as we see here in verse 4. Those who are, quote, saved through Jesus Christ, verse 5, before the foundation of the world. This is why Paul would say in Galatians 4, 5, that he suffered and died, quote, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. So, folks, let this sink in. This is utterly astounding. Before we had even been created, before we even existed, before we could have even sinned, God already decreed that undeserving sinners might receive his grace, quote, in Christ Jesus. In other words, through his blood, that we might receive the blood-bought grace, quote, through Christ. Paul speaks of this as well in 2 Timothy 1 and verse 9. He says there, God saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. A phrase that literally means before time began. Oh, child of God, don't miss this. I mean, this is the very heart of the gospel. And certainly this is the goal of all preaching, to put the glory of God's grace on display. And how do we do this? By proclaiming the 
precious, definite, effective, invincible power of God to save his elect through the death of Christ on the cross. All I can say is what astounding love this is. It's incomprehensible to me that God would decree that his redeeming love would one day draw unto himself for his own glory a multitude that no one can count and that I might be among them and that you might be among them. To think that he would ordain for himself the the pain of sacrificing his own son for the expiation and the propitiation of my sin and your sin. You will recall in John 10, beginning in verse 11, Jesus presented himself as the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. And he described those sheep as, quote, my own, who know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, verse 15. Verses 27 and 28, he goes on to say that that my sheep hear my voice, they follow me, and I give them eternal life. Verse 29, they are his sheep because the Father gave them to the Son. And before Christ went to the cross, In his high priestly prayer in John 17, beginning the end of verse 1, we read that Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you even as you gave him authority over all flesh. Now catch this. That to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. Those are the ones for whom Christ died. All whom the Father had given him in eternity past, whose names had been written in the Lamb's book of life. Folks, how different from the Arminian that denies such specific love. You see, for the Arminian, God does not love anyone so much that he has determined to overcome their innate rebellion and draw them invincibly into fellowship with him. But in truth, the father chose his own out of the world and gave them to his son. John 17, 6, Jesus says, Thine they were, and thou gavest them to me. He loved his own so much that he says that he will keep them to the end, that none of them would ever be lost. John 6, 39, This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. And we know it was to that end that Jesus consecrated himself on the night before his crucifixion. Here's what he said in John 17, 19. For their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. And then he prayed specifically for all whom the Father had given him. Not for the whole world, but for his own. John 17, 9, I am praying for them I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And then we know that he gave his life for his sheep. John 10, verse 14, Jesus says, I know my own, and my own know me, and I lay down my life for the sheep.
John 17, 10, Jesus added this, All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Folks, I hope you not only see this, but I hope you are profoundly humbled by this. You see, the glory to which Jesus was referred was not the glory of a potential salvation that was made available but an actual salvation made real and effective in the lives of, quote, his own, of all whom the Father had given him. In John 13, verse 1, as Jesus' hour had come to go to the cross, John says, quote, he loved his own and he loved them to the end. Aistelos in Greek, to the uttermost completely, fully, eternally. You see, folks, this is the love that he has for us. And this is different than the temporal love that God has for the unsaved that is manifested in his common grace. You see, his love for the world is unlimited in extent, but it is limited in degree. It's not a saving love. But the opposite is true for his elect. His love for the elect is limited in extent. It's exclusive to them, but it is unlimited in power to do exactly what God ordained to accomplish to bring glory to himself. And somehow we're all caught up in this inner Trinitarian love for one another and desire to glorify the God of glory. So those he set his love upon in eternity past, those that he elected by his uninfluenced, unmerited grace alone are not loved in some general way, but they are loved in a special way. And again, don't we crave this? Like my little Pepper craved her grandfather's love, a special love. You're not her papa, you're my papa. We all long to be loved in a special, unique, intimate way. Indeed, yes, God loves the world, but not like he loves his own. We see God's distinguishing love pictured so vividly in Ephesians chapter 5. Remember that text in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now think about this. Let me give you a little example. When I fell in love with my dear wife, I did not eventually say to her, you know, Nancy, I think I love you like I love every other woman in the world. (laughs) Now, had I said that, I'm sure she would have thought, oh, gee, thanks. No, instead, my love for her was greater. It was different than my love for any other creature on earth. My love for her was was a unique love. It was a distinguishing love. It was a love that caused me to choose her, to pursue her, to woo her, and to treasure her like no other woman on earth. A love that would cause me to gladly give my life for her. You all understand that. Oh, dear Christian, you will never be overwhelmed by the incalculable, 
eternal love of God for you if you perceive his love for you to be the same as his love for the world because it is not. It is different. It is unique. It is special. Using a different biblical metaphor, it is wrong to say that God loves his children because they believe in him. That God somehow looked down the corridors of time and he saw who wouldn't and, and who would believe in him. And, oh, that person is going to believe in me, so I am going to choose them and I am going to love them on the basis of their belief. You see, folks, that is backwards. Rather, you must understand it is because of his love for his children that he died for them. While they were yet sinners. It was because of his love that he made his spiritually dead children alive. Saved them from the wrath to come. And brought them to faith and repentance. Folks, this is the wonder of it all. That God set his atoning love on his elect. Before we were even able to sin and rebel against him. And he knew that we would. This adds new meaning to the little song we used to sing, right? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. May I close with some words of practical encouragement? I know that, as always, there are those of you that are struggling with a variety of things, and very often we all struggle with loneliness and discouragement. We can get overwhelmed. Sometimes we struggle with a lack of, of love. We just don't feel very loved. Certainly we don't feel very lovable. I always marvel that my wife loves me as much as she does. On three separate occasions just this week, I've counseled people in this condition. And I've reminded them of Psalm 42 and verse 5 that says, Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? And he answers his own dilemma, saying, Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. So I want to help you in our closing moments here to set your hope on God. And let's just fix our heart and our mind on what he has done for us in the past, what he is doing, what he will do. And let's do this by reflecting upon the truths that we have examined here this morning. Again, think about this. God set his love upon you before you could ever even respond to him in any way, before you were even created, before anything was created. He decreed that a lamb, his beloved son, would be slain to purchase with his blood your redemption because your name was written in that lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Don't you realize these things? And he chose you in him before the foundation of the world. Oh, what infinite, intimate love this is. And I marvel at Psalm 139, beginning in verse 13. There we read, For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. The psalmist goes on to say, My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret. And skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth, referring to the mother's womb. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all 
written the days that were ordained for me when, I, when as yet there was not one of them. Beloved, think about this. And you think of the love of God for you. Before you were ever even created, he knew your DNA. He knew your name. He knew your voice. He knew the number of your hairs. He knew how some of them would fall out over the years. So that's an ongoing tally, right? He knew the shape of your nails. He knew the color of your eyes, the sound of your voice. He knew your strengths, your weaknesses. He knew your frame. He knew the thoughts and imaginations of your heart. And he knew that you, like all of the rest, would have a sinful nature, that you would have an innate inability to conform to the moral character and desires of God. He knew all of that. He knew all of your sins. And despite all of this, he ordained a remedy to accomplish your redemption through the death of his son. And that redemption was actually perfectly accomplished in Christ's atoning work on the cross. Beloved, can I put it this way? It was never in doubt. It was never in doubt. God ordained it, which makes the grace of God displayed and accomplished in Christ's definite atonement the apex of God's glory. What happened on the cross is deeply personal to me. You see, his atoning work was not universal and indiscriminate. But Jesus came to save all whom the Father had given him before the foundation of the world. And for this reason, Paul could say in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. You see, God did not send his son into this world to make salvation possible, but to make it actual. God is not pacing the throne room of heaven, biting his nails, hoping that spiritually dead people who are alienated from him and who will never seek him on their own, according to scripture, will finally make a decision for Christ. He is not nervous, hoping, hoping that the song leader will sing just a few more verses of Just As I Am or I Have Decided to Follow Jesus to somehow play on the emotions of the lost and get them to walk an aisle and come forward to some contrived altar and then repeat some sinner's prayer. By the way, all of that stuff is completely foreign to Scripture. Dear friends, the decisive impulse to come to saving faith is from God, not man. And it is the blood of the new covenant and the atoning work of Christ that guarantees and secures our redemption. Ephesians 4 and verse 2, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him. Bottom line, dear friends, and may this encourage you, Jesus died for all who will believe in him and, who will be, and all who will believe in him are the ones who's had their names written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. 
And the Father's redeeming love will do whatever is necessary to draw those he has chosen to give to his Son so that his work on the cross would be accomplished once and for all. Samuel J. Stone captured this perfectly in his hymn lyrics. We sing this very often. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. Let's pray together. Father, I realize we're on holy ground here. These are things that are almost inconceivable to us. And were it not for your word, we would have never known any of this. Certainly, we would have never invented this on our own. But Lord, we're deeply humbled by it. We're overwhelmed by your redeeming love, even as we see it in definite redemption. And I pray that these truths will animate each of our hearts. That you will move us to higher praise and to deeper joy and to a richer sense of your redeeming love for us. And as we reflect upon these things, encourage our hearts, Lord. And we will be careful to give you all of the praise. For it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.